Once again, we turn to the book of Mark for our text this evening. We are in Mark 9, and um, if you recall last time we considered a text from this book. We were looking at the account of the transfiguration, and if you recall, uh, in that account, Peter, James, and John were the disciples that were in the inner circle that had the privilege of seeing Christ upon the mountain And seeing him in a way that none other had seen him. And they caught a glimpse of the glorified Christ. And this account served to um, teach these men about the divinity of Christ. And to embolden their faith in Christ as the Son of God. And we'll be reading um, in the next set of verses, Mark 9, 14 through 29... We talked a few weeks ago, if you'll recall, about how Mark 8 really serves as a hinge, and and it is literally the the, the middle chapter in the book, but it's not just um, in number that we look at it in that way, but there seems to be a a turn, in a sense, in the events. We see many miracles in the chapters um, 1 through 7 and and leading into 8, and then we see much teaching in the chapters that follow. However, we read in our text tonight about a miracle, and it is one of uh, what commentators call uh, one of two regular miracles. In other words, they kind of have the, the same pattern of, of events as they transpire and as we've seen happen again and again in the, in the first half of Mark. But um, we, see, we read about this um, another um, account where... Uh, Jesus casts a demon out of a young boy. But in this, we, that Mark seems to highlight something more than simply Christ's authority. We certainly see that. But we also see a lack of faith in the disciples. We see the faith that's struggling in the Father, where he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And then we see the importance of prayer in our own lives of faith. And in the lives of the disciples as well. So those three things will form our outline. The lack of faith, the cry of faith, and the prayer of faith. So let us pause and pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his holy word tonight. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. And we are eager to learn from you. For it is how you have revealed yourself to us. It is in and through your word. Thank you, Lord, that... It is inspired, it is holy, it is, it is true, it is inerrant, and we can trust it, and we sit under its authority tonight. So, Lord, would you bless us, and Lord, would you um, make my words uh, proper and right, and guard me from, from anything that is, that is false. And, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Mark nine fourteen through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, <clears throat> I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, 
How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has, he, has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word this evening. As we approach this text and this account, we see a scene that is very familiar. We see a scene that that seems like it's like any other miracle. Because we see crowds of people. We see the scribes who were present there. And, of course, it's not surprising to us that they were arguing with the disciples. We see also people who were amazed with Jesus and eager to see him. But this account seems different from what we've experienced in the past in that there seems to be some dark overtones to this account that we have to take notice of. Tones of confusion, oppression, and even hostility that that we can see easily in the text. We quickly learn that the disciples who had been left here um, while Peter, James, and John went up with Jesus and ascended this mountain, the disciples who had been left were unable to cast out this demon uh, from this young boy. And this, young, this man had come and requested that, that, he, that this child be relieved of this demon, but they were unable to do that. So we see, first of all, the lack of faith on the part of the disciples. Jesus comes upon the scene, and, and he had just been upon the mountain of transfiguration, and he, he asks what they're arguing about, and Scripture doesn't tell us precisely what it was, but we know that they came to seek, this man had come to seek Christ's help to cast out this demon because it made the boy mute, it threw him down, it made him grind his teeth, it, his body would become rigid. And, and these are symptoms, commentators point out, that these are symptoms similar to a seizure that we might see in someone that had epilepsy or a similar condition. But it wasn't that. It was a demon-possessed boy. He had this evil spirit that brought these terrible things upon him. And like we said, the disciples were unable And perhaps it was that inability on the part of the disciples that caused the argument. Maybe the scribes came and and were, in a sense, poking fun at the disciples, while even though they denied the source of the authority of Christ, they knew he had the ability to cast this demon out, whereas the disciples weren't able to do that. 
And you think about this and you think, well, you know, they were disciples. They were in training. They hadn't, you know, learned. Obviously, they hadn't learned everything they needed to. But when we think about what has happened and what Jesus has told them and given to them, we recognize that they should have been able to. For in chapter 3, when Jesus called his disciples, we see that he gave them authority to preach and to cast out demons, it says specifically. And then in chapter 6, we see that Jesus sent them out two by two. And that was one job that they were equipped and commanded to do was to cast out demons. And not only that, we see that they did that. We see that they did the work of of exorcism in, in following Christ's command. So they should have been able to do what this man requested. Likely, they were embarrassed by this. They were probably glad to see Jesus show up. Because he, was, he could save them from the embarrassment of the moment of their own inability. And Jesus responds sharply to them in words that, that really help us see the, his frustration and his disappointment with the disciples and the people there. He says in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Well, we see that word generation, and it, it would lead us possibly to, to think that possibly he's, he's talking to more than just the disciples. Well, in the account, we see that the disciples were the, the primary culprits uh, that, that this charge could be laid upon because they were unable to cast out this demon. They did not have the faith required to cast this spirit out of this boy. So the disciples' lack of faith is most clearly evident, but it seems to imply not just um, the the disciples, but more than that. We know there was a crowd of people there. We know that the scribes were there. But it seems in, in my mind that Jesus is saying that the disciples were representative of a large portion of the people that he had interacted with already in his ministry. Because largely, the people rejected Jesus. Yes, there were those that came. And we see the disciples in their progress and in their learning. um, And they were seeking to follow Christ. But largely, it was a faithless generation. It seemed to include all those present and those who were really representative of most of the people that Jesus encountered in his time upon the earth. And Mark is so brutally honest with the, about the disciples' lack of understanding. We see that, as we talked about in chapter 8, following Peter's great confession where he says, you are the Christ, then he turns around and he shows this, this great lack of understanding. We see he's still kind of bumbling and, and making bizarre suggestions on the Mount of Transfiguration about what they should do in response to seeing Moses and Elijah up on the mountain. But here it's more than just misunderstanding. It's really unbelief. It's really their lack of faith in the power of God over the forces of evil. Jesus knew that his time with the disciples and his time upon the earth was short. He knew that he was headed for the cross and he was beginning to teach them about what he came to do. And he wonders in frustration and says, how long am I able to bear with you? And then he immediately follows that with words to the father of the boy, saying, Bring him to me. 
And the disciples must have been relieved to see that Jesus was going to do what they had failed to be able to do. And then we see that when this this boy who was possessed with this spirit came near Christ, then this spirit began acting out in a way that that was really frightening. He was convulsing the boy. He threw him to the ground. He caused him to convulse around on the ground and foam at the mouth. And Jesus seems unfazed by these, these things that are so bizarre to us and, and would, would certainly frighten us as we recognize the forces and the power of Satan upon this young man. And he asks, in compassion, he asks the father, how long has this been happening? And he tells him, it's since childhood. And, and the spirit even throws this, tries to throw him in the fire and in the water to destroy him. So you think about this and you think how desperate this man must have felt how he had been seeing this for for several years, obviously. And this child had been tormented. He had heard of Christ's fame, and he had brought the boy in hopes of having Jesus to cast this demon out, as Jesus had been known to do for others. But then Jesus wasn't there, and so he asked the, the, the men in charge, the men who should have been able to help him, the disciples that were left, and they couldn't do it. So in contrast to the disciples' lack of faith, we see the Father's cry of faith. We have this anxious, no doubt careworn father wondering if there's any hope for his son. And can you almost hear the weariness in his voice when he speaks to Christ? He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus, again, responds with words full of human emotion, knowing that the power of God that was at his disposal. And he he says, if you can, and and I think even some some versions of Scripture put in the words, what do you mean, if you can? He's, he's in a a sense, responding um, with amazement to say, do you know what you're saying, sir? I'm Jesus. I can do this. I've got this. So, but, but the man, then, and then he reminds the father, all things are possible for the one who believes. And then the father of the boy, in words that, that hopefully express what we feel so often, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. He knew he was struggling. He knew he was weak. He knew that his faith was imperfect. He had faith that was present And it was faith in Christ, but it was a struggling faith. And the important thing that we must realize is not necessarily the amount of faith we have, but it is the object of our faith. What is our faith in? And in that moment, his faith was in Christ. His faith was in the work that Christ could do. But Jesus' words, all things are possible for the one who believes, are not offered carte blanche to anyone for any reason, for any selfish whim imaginable, but rather those all things that are offered are given to those whose faith and trust is in God alone and those who seek to have those things that are in accord with his will. And the father's statement might seem like a contradiction where he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Is he believing or is he not believing? Well, he's, he's recognizing the mixture of belief and the lack thereof within his own heart. And so often that describes us. We have faith, 
But if we're honest with ourselves and with God, we see that it's very imperfect, that it's struggling. We, we tend to want to trust ourselves. We, we tend to want to trust in our own means and in the means of man to, for the solutions of, of the problems that we face. Perhaps this is not an issue with you, but, but at times in my own life, I have struggled to trust God's provision. And too often I have gone into debt thinking I need something when in reality I just don't want to wait upon God's provision. How has this applied in your life? How is it that that you fail to trust in God? How is it that, that your belief is mixed with unbelief? I think we must be honest with ourselves to recognize ways in which we fail to trust in God and our our. Faith is mixed with unbelief. Calvin said that in his commentary on this text, he says, As our faith is never perfect, it follows that we are partly unbelievers. But God forgives us and exercises such forbearance towards us as to reckon us believers on account of the small portion of faith that we have. And Matthew, in his account of this, he says that he reminds us that that Jesus spoke that we only need faith as a grain of mustard to see a mountain moved. It's not the amount of faith. It's the source of our faith. It's who we are trusting in. So I ask you, where is your faith? Is your cry directed towards God? Is your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, certainly, and for every other need? So we've seen the the lack of faith. We've seen the cry of faith. And then Jesus ends this account speaking to them about the prayer of faith. But what happens next? Well, in a familiar pattern, Jesus speaks to this demon. He commands it to be gone. And then he adds the words, don't ever come back. He is speaking to the demon with authority and commanding it to depart and never to return. We see then the violent reaction of the Spirit to the words and authority of Christ. The Spirit knows that it must obey, but it doesn't go without a fight. It convulses this boy and throws him to the ground. And, and this, this Spirit that Scripture calls a mute spirit, in other words, it kept the boy from speaking, but at that moment it shrieks. It cries out, knowing that it must obey Christ. It cries out in defiance and then departs and leaves the boy limp and lifeless. So much that many thought he was dead. But Jesus, the creator of life, knew that life was in him. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And it's, it's language similar to what we saw in chapter 5 when Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus to life again. He took her by the hand, he spoke to her, and life was given. Remember, sin brings death and in these In other parallel verses, we see that Jesus is reversing the domain of death. His kingdom is breaking in. It's coming. He's bringing life. And then Jesus goes into a house. And there's the disciples ask him, what happened? You know, they are probably bewildered thinking, what did we just see? And why couldn't we do what Jesus did so easily? Why couldn't they cast him out? Well, Jesus doesn't give them a ten-point outline of all the things they did wrong. In fact, he just tells them one thing. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer 
If, you're, um, if you've read other versions, sometimes the words and fasting is added there, and there are manuscripts that include that as well. And I think that's, it's, it's certainly not um, out of line. The, the ESV has chosen not to include it based upon their textual um, study of it. But I think it's, it's certainly in line to think about prayer and fasting being what drives um, fervent prayer. But what is prayer? And why is it so indispensable to the Christian life? Well, our shorter catechism tells us that prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Prayer acknowledges our need. In prayer, we admit that we are needy and weak. That's the nature of prayer. And in the example of prayer, when, when the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, and he responded with, with the words that we call the Lord's Prayer, when really it's, it's actually the disciples' prayer. It's, it's our example prayer. It's our framework for prayer. And, it, and we are told to pray that God's name would be hallowed, that his will would be done, But quickly in that prayer, we read, give us this day our daily bread. Every prayer should recognize our dependence upon God. Even if your drawer or your basket or wherever you store your bread at home is full of bread, we need to pray that prayer every day. Not because we love bread and we're worried we're going to run out of it, but because we recognize that God is the giver of everything that we need. And we recognize our dependence upon him. We can easily say, I have plenty of bread. I'm well stocked. The cupboards are stocked. The bank account's fine. Everything's good. But it's then we are in danger of failing to recognize God as the provider of all things. In our prayers, we confess our needs. We confess that we need God's grace and help. And it appears from Christ's response that the disciples were not eager to recognize their dependence on God. ...to cast this demon out. Maybe they looked at it and they thought... ...hey, we've done this before. We can do this. And in a sense, went forth in their own power... ...and and ultimately failed in what they set out to do. We should never go into a task or project... ...thinking, I've got this... ...in a sense that I can do this on my own. We only do that... ...recognizing any ability that we have... ...comes from God... Paul the Apostle suffered from an infirmity which, for which he prayed earnestly to be relieved. He said he prayed three times and God, instead of healing him, God reminded him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul testified, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It is when Paul recognized his weakness that he could feel the strength, not of himself, not not that he was just, you know, toughening himself up to overcome in himself this weakness, this infirmity, whatever it was, but it was, it was then that he felt the power of Christ upon him when he admitted his weakness, when he gloried in his weakness. And that's the, that's the example that we should 
that we should follow. We need to embrace the dependence upon Christ that is cultivated by a a strong prayer life. Prayer begets faith, and the life of faith is grown upon our knees as we learn dependence upon God for our every need. As I close, I I wanted to share something with you that that stuck with me, and, and I trust it will with you as well. Perhaps some of you have read recently of words that were shared on May 23rd of this year at Westminster Theological Seminary at their um, graduation, at their commencement. David Powelson um, is an author that I, I trust some of you know. He's written about counseling. He's written about the Christian life. Um, and he wrote an address that he hoped to give at the close of that graduation, but he was unable to as he was in the final days of his life from stage 4 pancreatic cancer. And I just wanted to share some of his comments, and I won't read all of, all of this, certainly. He began by, by speaking about when he was a student at Westminster um, nearly 40 years ago, and he spoke about how he had heard um, Richard Gaffin speak about, from Romans 6.28, how the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And David Powelson um, wrote, and someone read it at that graduation, and he said that, that uh, Dr. Gaffin made a point that he had never forgotten, that weakness is singular. It does not say weaknesses as if there were a finite list of sins, A, B, C, and sufferings, X, Y, Z, in your life. Weakness, singular, is a comprehensive description of our human condition. We are perishable. We are mortal. We face a multitude of afflictions in our lives. And we are sinful, bent from the heart towards pride, self-righteousness, fear of man, and a multitude of desires and fears that beset us. The mercies of God meet us in this comprehensive condition of weakness. And then he went on and he talked about David, how David in Psalm 40 was not afraid to recognize his weakness, where he says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. He spoke about Paul in the account that we just read where he says, um, where God told him, his grace is sufficient for you, for, your, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then in, in what he wrote here, he, he talked about Jesus. We see, the, he says, supremely, we see fearlessness of public weakness in the life and words of Christ himself. The Beatitudes sound the keynote of Jesus' keynote talk, the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus says captures what he himself embodies. And he goes on and he talks about how in the Beatitudes where it says, Blessed are the merciful. Think of having your life characterized by a deep concern for the welfare of others. To be generous, open-hearted, and open-handed. Jesus says the pure in heart are blessed. Describing the ability to approach all people free from duplicitous motives. Free of self-serving Jesus says, peacemakers are blessed. They are nothing less than the children of God. Peacemaking is the ability to be candid, constructive, and caring. To pursue peace in a world that is full of war, dissension, conflicts, arguments, and avoiders. Jesus says, those who are persecuted are blessed. He calls us to joyful purposefulness, finding courage in affliction, finding perseverance in opposition... These are wonderful traits. These are traits of leadership and loving fruitfulness in Jesus' life and ours as well. That kind of strength comes from the right kind of weakness. 
He goes on, speaking of our Lord, he says, He is fruitful, he is strong, but he is fruitful and strong on the foundation of this abiding sense of weakness and need. And it's that weakness and need that we see supremely exhibited at the end of his life when he goes to death in our place, casting himself on his Father's mercy and power. He was raised in strength while retaining compassion and sympathy for our weakness and for our need. He warmly welcomes us to the throne of grace that we might receive the mercy we need and the grace specific to whatever difficult situation we are in. And then he concluded with these words to the graduates. He said, My deepest hope for you is that in both your personal life and your ministry to others, you would be unafraid to be publicly weak as the doorway to the strength of God himself. Here was a man that was facing death. And then we learned just a few days later that that this man went home to be with Jesus just this past Friday. He was facing death at this time when he wrote these words recognizing the strength that is in weakness and the strength that comes not in ourselves, but as we cast ourselves and depend upon God. May God grant us grace that we could live in such a place, in such a place where we daily recognize our need for Him. And it's only through prayer that we do that because Saints of God, when we are so busy that we rush into our days and we close our day without recognizing this, we can forget it. Not that that we don't know that we're dependent upon God, but in the busyness and, and in the culture we live in, we're just kind of pressured into doing things on our own when we don't have to when we should confess our weakness, when we should, we should pray daily and confess that weakness and our dependence upon God. We should pray like the Father in our text, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. For as we confess our need, our faith will grow because we get to know God better in our weakness. And not because of us, but because of the almighty power of God who is the source and the object of our faith. Let us pray.